weeks, but I would like to start at verse 39 so you get the backdrop of these words. We'll start, so it, it, it involves the, the visit of Mary to her cousin Elizabeth, and as they rejoice, these two ladies, one who is old and miraculously has a child, will be John the Baptist, and one who is very young and miraculously has a child, will be the most important child ever born, Jesus. They rejoice, and then Mary breaks out into this very famous poem, this very which is called, which has been very called Mary's Song of Praise, and has been famously dubbed the Magnificat. And I'd like to preach on the Magnificat today. And it is not an easy, it is not really an easy message. And I know that some of you are thinking Christmas is a festive and joyous time of the year, but actually, for many people, Christmas can be a hard time of year. And but what the gospel brings, you know, even in this, as we wrestle with what Mary says, what Mary says here in some ways is hard. And I think maybe hard for us as comfortable Americans to wrestle with, but I hope we would wrestle with this as we look toward that this is what she sings before the, the birth of the Savior. So let's go to verse 39. This is the word of God. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And with Elizabeth and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then Mary sang this song. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has come, has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her. May the Lord bless the reading of his word as we look toward Christmas as it's coming. Let's pray for today's message. May we be like Mary. May we rejoice and magnify you, Lord. But may we also be like her in another way, Lord. May we be of lowly of heart. May we have eyes to see that you, a mighty God, 
never forsake and never overlook the poorest and the weakest and those who are deeply hungry, those who are hurting, those who are looking for more than all that the world can offer. The world offers many things, Lord God, but there is a hunger in us, there is a need in us for something, only something outside this world, something only you can offer. And we pray, Lord, that as we come and look to you, that we see that you have offered us yourself. Yourself. And all our lowliness, in your lowliness, and your weakness is even what we need. Not even just your mightiness, but your weakness. And you gave us that weakness. And may your weakness and your lowliness melt away our pride and make us hungry and make us poor again before you and glad to receive you and turn to you. Bless your people through this word in Jesus' name. Um, a couple years ago, I gave a sermon in which I quote a passage. You know, I, I, multiple times I've quoted a passage out of this very famous book, which is Mere Christianity, written by one of the most famous authors of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. And every couple of years or so, I always like to go back to this passage. And I'm going to read about this from this passage in the middle of this sermon. And um, if, you, if you know this passage really well, great. I should probably quote this every <laughs> to do a sermon where I read from this probably once a year um, because it's good for you. But today's sermon is hard, actually. And, um, and I didn't plan it this way. <laughs> I kind of planned this series, and, you know, and I, I thought that, that at the end of the year this way, you're thinking, that's kind of hard and a little bit dark. But it isn't dark, I think, for us to wrestle with pride. That's what I'd like to talk about primarily today, to wrestle with pride. It's the darkest thing inside of us. And to have that darkness pierced by the light of the coming of Jesus, that is something that we deeply, all of us deeply, deeply need. So today I'd like to talk about this issue of pride, and I'll do it in three parts. One, I'd like to talk about rich and comfortable. Two, I'd like to talk about, well, the great sin. That's what Lewis calls it, the great sin, pride. And three, I'd like to talk about the subversive humility of divine weakness. Subversive is a word that maybe not a lot of people use. It means that which undermines, that which undermines. Okay. So, number one, rich and comfortable. This passage, if you read it, it's a strange thing. You know, this, her cousin says, you are so blessed. You are so blessed because you are the mother of our Lord. And then Mary breaks out into a song, or at least breaks out into a poem, and we think it's a song, and she starts to extol this beautiful imagery. But what she says is actually rather disturbing, at least, or maybe it's disturbing to us. Because what she says is the Lord turns away the rich, and he breaks down the prideful. And what he does is, me, I'm so nothing. I'm so humble and of lowliness, and yet the Lord has his eyes on me. And, he, and then she starts talking about this great drama in the world that the Lord has his eyes on the lowly and the poor. And this isn't so much a message where I'm trying to induce guilt out of you, but 
I don't know if many of you understand that Christmas, Christmas is a time of great tidings for the poor. That's really what it is. Great tidings for those who are hungry. Great tidings for those who are tremendously lowly and have no power and who are weak and sometimes even alienated from even having opportunity. You know, we live in a country of tremendous opportunity. In that way, you know, I know that America is full of deep problems. And, you know, we may have a lot of riches, and we have dysfunctional politics in our society, and we have deeply great disturbances, as we saw, you know, as we looked at with some of the horrifying events of last week in Newtown, Connecticut. Um, But in so many ways... You know, when we see such things, we are looking at the condition of the world. If you go around to most of the world, there's great poverty in this world. And you go to certain places and there's great riches. And sometimes in this world, the stark difference between that which is those who have money and those who have opportunity and those who have riches versus those who have nothing. I mean, it's tremendous. Um, a, a couple of years ago, I, I did a sermon and I, get, and I showed us a clip you know, uh, out of out of the uh, out of the movie, out of a very famous movie, which won the Academy Award, and they talked they talked about the slum dogs of India, right? And in this movie, you you saw it was a shocking scene that we don't typically tend to see in America: tremendous riches in an Indian city, and right next to tremendous riches is tremendous poverty. But do you know that that is the norm of history, and that is actually quite normal in the world, but in America. You know, we, there's, the, to live in this country is to live in great opportunity, tremendous opportunity. And I hope you, none of you take that for granted. I know that it's so easy that as we beca- it becomes the norm of our life that we begin to take this for granted. But in so many different ways, I hope, you know, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty for the fact that you live in America, but I want you to feel grateful. I want you to feel thankful that you live in a country where those who are poor still have great opportunity afforded to them. And those who are middle class, I hope you feel this way. Some of you feel like, well, you know, this passage is talking about the rich. I don't think it really applies to me. It absolutely applies to you. To be middle class in America is to have a lottery ticket in history. You are really at the top of the most privileged place in all of history. And to live right here in this world, on this globe, you live among the richest people that have ever lived on this planet. To be middle class in America is to be among the rich. And that's why I think when we read this passage, it tends to do a couple things to us. Either one, what it tends to do is, you're like, well, she's talking about those who are, you know, send away the rich, but I'm not rich, so I'm not sure if it applies to me. So the passage may not resonate to you, but I have to make you feel kind of bad, <laughs> First, to make you see the passage absolutely is relevant to us. And the second thing is, this passage, it makes you, I want you to see, you know, if you don't read, if you've never really read through the Gospel of Luke, there's a repeated note in the Gospel of Luke, which is, rich people don't get Jesus. Rich people, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. They don't know how to get what is so important, because God comes in such a lowly form, and God comes to a people that are so broken that people who are rich and comfortable, they just don't get it. That is a repeated note in the Gospel of Luke. Um, 
at the youth retreat, I read through a passage, a very famous passage in one of my sermons from Matthew chapter 5, and many of you know it, where Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, and he has his little portions where he says, blessed are the, blessed are the. And it starts off, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he starts. The first sermon that is recorded from Jesus in the Bible, he starts, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's how he says. And there's a whole list of those who are blessed. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what I told our teenagers, our youth, was, you notice that this is what it says, these are the people who are called, who get it, who are drawn into God's kingdom, who are drawn to Jesus. And I told them, do you notice, none of them are cool. <laughs> none of them are cool. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And do you notice, none of them are cool. So if you are a teenager who very much cares about cool, first you need to learn how to be incredibly uncool if you want to be part of what God does. That's one of the things I told them. But if you actually go to Luke chapter 6, so let me actually ask you to go there. Go to Luke chapter 6. And um, so at the beginning of the sermon, let me make you, many of you who may feel, um, some of you are thinking, oh, you know, I'm not that rich, Pastor. Let me tell you, you know what the median income? The median income in America is, for a household, it is about $50,000. At least that's what it was a few years ago. I looked up those numbers. So for those of you who don't remember your, 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 your elementary school math, okay, median is the number that means all the, of a group, half of the group is above that number and half of the group is below that number. Okay? So if your family makes more than $50,000, you make more than half, half of the households in America. You're on the upper half of the households of the richest nation on the earth. Okay? So that's where you're at. And so... And if, you live in a, and if you live in the Silicon Valley, the, the median the income is even higher than $50,000. It's even higher than that. So you're living in one of the richest areas of the richest country. And if you make more than, I think it's about 60-something thousand dollars of the median income in, in, in Santa Clara County. 60-something thousand dollars. And some of you probably are there, okay? You are, you're among the rich. And so when you get to Luke, the way Luke records these words, and I don't know if Jesus said them more than once, um, but Luke starts off this way. Verse 20, Jesus lifted up his eyes on the disciples and he said, blessed are you who are poor. Not blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Blessed are you who are poor. Then he goes on to say, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. You notice? The way Luke records these words of Jesus, it's a hurting people. It's a lowly people. It's a poor people. And some of you are going like, you know, well, there's poor in spirits, and then there's poor economically, people who don't have much. They are downtrodden. And some of you are saying, well, that disturbs me because in one place it's talking about economic and one place it's another. Does that mean that the Bible is contradictory? I absolutely do not think the Bible is contradictory. 
I think in America sometimes, we who are kind of middle class or sometimes maybe upper middle class Christians, we, we read these passages about the poor and then because it's we're not poor, it doesn't always immediately affect us. Or maybe sometimes it, it affects us for about five minutes. It makes us feel guilty for the fact that we're rich and we often don't think about the poor or care about the poor. But what the Bible often does is the Bible doesn't say that there is poor in spirit and poor like they're just two utterly different things. But what they say is those who are economically and who have poverty and who lack power in society, they often also have poverty inside. The deeper question, I think, is not necessarily whether you have money or don't have money. Some of the most important and the most you know, pleasing people to God in the Bible, they were rich. I mean, one of the most pleasing people to God is Abraham. Abraham was incredibly rich, especially for his time. The man was probably, I mean, he was, he was loaded. He was absolutely loaded. He'd be right among there, among the richest people in our society, if, you know, contextually, if you want to compare. So it isn't necessarily about economic riches, but often many people who have economic riches, they very much lack an inner poverty. The thing that the Lord is always looking for is, are you a person who weeps because the world isn't quite enough for you? Are you hungry for more than the world can offer you? You know, if you drop down to verse 24, it gets even worse. In Luke 6, 24, Jesus doesn't just say, you know, in verse 21, he says, blessed are you, verse 20, he says, blessed are you who are poor. But in verse 24, Jesus actually says, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And so to start this message you know, what I'm saying is something really hard. Um, you come to church, do you come hungry? I'm not talking physically hungry for food. I don't know, some of you may have not eat, eaten breakfast this morning and, you know, then you're hungry. You're like, okay, that applies to me because I'm hungry at this exact moment. I'm not talking about whether you ate a bagel this morning. I'm talking, do you come? Does your soul, does your heart long for something more? They want education, the schools, or money, or status, or any other comforts that the world can offer you. you know? But there's a comfort that only God can offer you. Um, I'd like to say one more point before I go to the second point of my message. You know, this is a, an ongoing thing in our society, and sometimes especially at Christmas. Our culture is so... It's such a great temptation to think about Christmas as primarily it's just about our families and it is about gifts and it is, you know, about a good, a better economy. I don't know if a lot of you know, but Christmas, literally God is so good and so merciful that even to a people who care nothing about him, he even saves their economy. <laughs> That's what God does. That's how God is so good. And God doesn't... God is so gracious that he doesn't mind offering that good gift to people who despise the gospel. He offers them riches even when they care nothing about God. Right? Um, but in so many ways, it is a tremendous temptation that when we are not hungry physically, when we have a nice house and when we have a nice job and when we feel a certain sense of security, it is so easy for us to feel like, I'm a pretty good person, aren't I? You know, 
I never really hurt anybody or never committed any crimes. And therefore, this message about sin and salvation and I don't know all this stuff that Christians like to talk about doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. But there is this thing, and I want to warn all of you, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian today, this, there's a tremendous temptation and a lie that regularly arises in our minds that when we live a nice life, we like to attribute it to ourselves. Right? You know, a number of years ago, I read a book which I thought was a, a remarkable book. It was written by a Stanford business professor, and it's a famous book, a tremendously influential book in the business community called Good to Great. And in the book, Good to Great, what he does is he studies companies that took, you know, they took their company from a time when they were doing pretty good, but then they took it to a level of greatness. And they studied what makes these companies great. But one of the things that was really interesting in that book is, you know, among these companies that they kind of singled out as the Good to Great companies, they all had what they call a type 5, level 5 leader. These were their CEOs, right? And whether you agree with the thesis of, uh, of this book or not, the, one of the things I thought tremendously uh, that I really remembered about that chapter is when they went, you know, this, the, 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 the gentleman who wrote, who wrote this book, and the, the, when they studied and they interviewed each of these leaders, each of these leaders, what they found tremendously surprising about these men is that they were deeply humble men, right? Even though they had achieved greatness, their companies were, I mean, they were at the peak of their fields. Their companies were the top, top companies. And when they asked, how did you guys do it? And regularly, one after the other, these great men of industry said, it was mostly luck. Or some of them would said probably, well, I don't want to say this, but it was probably from God or it was you know, providential or something. Because they realized all the tremendous things that have to align up for them to have great success. It wasn't just because they worked hard. Of course they worked hard. It wasn't because they were smart. Of course they were smart. But when they got down to it, what made them tremendously successful and put them at the peak of their field, one man after another surprisingly said, it was probably luck. And some of them said, well, the ones who believe in God, it was probably God. <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't, don't think it was because we were so special. And that was tremendously surprising to the authors of the field. And I would say most of us can't think like that. When you look at your life and how things turned out in life, what do you attribute that success to? How smart you were, how, 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 what little things that you did at certain key times in your career, or the good grades you got. That's where you, put your, you attribute your success to these things. But, you know, in so many ways, people tremendously underestimate. You, your success probably comes from the fact that your parents are good to you. Somebody was really nice to you along your career path. Right? You had a good professor who actually made you understand the material. Not because you were so smart, but one of your professors wasn't lazy <laughs> and actually did a good job and it made you understand the material, and it, you, it was your jazz to that material. And so your mind was lifted. You had a friend who helped you when you were down. That made all the difference. Okay. And it wasn't you. And a lot of times, somebody, all these things came into your life, and we call it luck. But those of us who believe in God knows it ain't luck. It's grace. Right? And so... 
You know, if you really know who you are and have your mind properly set, you don't tend to attribute the good things in your life to you. That's a delusion, quite frankly. If you actually have it right, the good things in your life are more, much more about grace and very small part about how hard you work or how smart you are or how, how talented you are. That's actually a very small part of your life. The good things of your life have much to do with grace. So please, consider that, and I hope it offers you a piece of humility, which is... Now let's go to the second portion of the message, which is pride. Now, if we look at Luke chapter... One, now, when I give this message, I'm talking about pride, the sin of pride. Um, I know this sin. There are, really well, (laughs) there are sins that I'm not as good at, okay? There are sins that I don't commit so regularly. But pride, that one, that, that is an evil that I am deeply familiar with. I mean, I know that sucker incredibly well. All right? And when I read this set, I mean, let me tell you the part that just really bothers me when I read this part passage. When I read this, every time, it just stands out to me. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's the one that really gets me. God has scattered the proud, what? In the thoughts of their hearts. Because that's where pride resides. In the way you think, which flows out of the depth of your heart. That's where it resides. And as we look at Christmas, I hope Christmas isn't just oh, it's just another, another Christmas and we're going to go through the whole, the tree and the gifts and the money and the busyness and all that stuff, right? But I hope it makes you think about this, your pride. <laughs> that the baby in the manger came to pierce your pride. And all the foolish and delusional ways you attribute the niceness of your life to yourself, Right? And to do that, what I'd like to do is talk about, um, I'd like to do is just read to you, because I don't know of anyone who said it better than Lewis, C.S. Lewis. And if you've never read this book, it's a good book. Some of the parts of the book, it's, it's honestly hard. But this chapter is not hard. <laughs> I think this chapter is worth the price of the whole book itself, and it's worth getting the book just so you can read this chapter once a year. So if you're like me, you're a person who tends to think a lot about yourself. You tend to think well of yourself. You like to think well of yourself. You like to think you're all that. You always, it makes you feel so good when someone tells you you're all that, and it especially makes you feel good to feel that you're all that compared to somebody else. I'm smarter than this guy. I'm better looking than this guy. Whatever. I made more money than this guy. I'm more successful than there's all these other people. But I'm better because I'm just above. Okay? I know I'm not the only person who's like that, and some of you are just worse about it. Um, you can compete with me <laughs> for being really bad about it. And so number uh, many years ago when I was in college, I read this chapter, and it really did a number on me. I mean, it really rung my bell. It re- it, I, I remember it like yesterday. I was sitting on a bus, 
<laughs> going to Stonehenge, which is a totally stupid place. Don't ever go there. It's ridiculous. Okay, just just see the pictures. It's worthless. Okay, but I was on a bus to Stonehenge reading this chapter, and the Lord lit me up. It changed my life. I never realized. I think it's the first time I ever realized how deeply messed up I was. I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. This thing made me feel I profoundly need a Savior. So let me just read it for you. Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see when when he sees it in someone else and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. I hope you think about that. That might, you might be. The more you hate someone else who's like this, that's, that's a rather bothersome phrase, okay? The vice I'm talking of of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warn you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. That's a big claim. You can only get that from the Bible, right? It was pride that the devil, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me? You know, they walk in the room, they talk to everybody else, but not you. And then you're just, right? Or when they shove their oar in, or patronize me, or show off. You're one of those people that get really ticked. You walk in, and you know the person's talking. And you know the only reason, you can just sense. The reason they're saying this thing is just to tell you how good they are. They're not, you know, and some people can say, tell you how humble they are to tell you how good they are. I mean, gosh, come on, right? And you're one of those people, you just have a nose for this. Let me just tell you, it takes one to know one. Okay? It takes one to know one. 
The point is that each person's pride is in competition with everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed that someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature. While all the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than someone else. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there will be nothing to be proud about. You know, this is why everyone in the major leagues doesn't make the same amount of money. I wish we could all just say, hey, all you bozos, how about if we just paid everybody a million dollars and we all shut up about the money? If everybody made a million dollars for their whole career and you all made a million dollars for 10 years, you'd have enough to, you know, your, your grandchildren could retire because we shut up about the money and we could just worry about who wins on the field. But that would never happen because if we all made the same amount of money, a lot of people would cry about it because there's no way they can say, I'm better than you. Hmm. And just multiply that by everything. Who has the better hair? <laughs> Who has the better seat? Who has the better clothes? That's why the clothes every single year will always change. You know why? Because the industry is always appealing to the people who can say, I have the latest, the best, the better clothes than you. You have lame, ugly clothes because you bought them two years ago and nobody wears those stupid clothes anymore, even though they're perfectly good. Okay, It's pride. Even the whole economy is based on it. It's crazy. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure. It's a pleasure. We get a pleasure out of it. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. The sexual impulses may drive two men into competition if they both want the same girl, but that is only by accident. They might just have likely wanted two different girls. But a proud man will take your girl from you, not because he wants her, but just to prove to himself that he is a better man than you. Greed may drive men into competition if there's not enough to go around. But the proud man, even when he has got more than he could possibly want, will try to get still more than just to assert his power. Nearly all those evils in the world which people put down to greed or selfishness are really far more the result of pride. Now some of you are wondering, you know, people in the church, aren't they really so... I believe in Jesus, so I have the gospel. You know, I believe in the gospel. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so... I come to church, doesn't that already mean that I already have some measure of humility because I already figured out that you're supposed to bow down to God, right? No, there's a lot of people in the church. And you know what they have pride about? They have pride about being in the church. <laughs> it's so bad. You know, we have something good in your life. The thing, it's not just good enough to have something good in your life. You have faith. 
or you believe in the truth, you have to feel good and superior to other people. So let me tell you something. Christians should never feel superior for being Christians. People in the church should never feel superior to somebody else for being in the church. If you're one of those people who show up on time and you time and you pray more and you know the Bible really well, but somebody else comes in the church, they're late, they're lazy about worship, they barely know the Bible, and they really have no reverence, and when they pray, they stumble with their words. A person who's really eloquently religious should never be prideful over that. But you know what? You know, here, let me tell you how Lewis puts it. We'll read this, and then let me get toward the end of my sermon, okay? Raise a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious? So they think to themselves they're religious. I'm afraid it means they're worshiping, this is, a, this is his diagnosis, an imaginary God. There's a lot of people in the church with their lips. They say they worship Jesus. But according to Lewis, they don't really worship Jesus. They worship a false God that they made up in their mind. It's a pretty terrible diagnosis. They theoretically admit to themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God that they made up in their head but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. He thinks they're better than the, than the people who sleep around. God must think I'm better than them. God must think I'm better than these people who don't know anything about the Bible. God must think I'm better than all these people who you know, party all the time and who are full of greed and make money because you know I tithe. Right? That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to God and get out of it a pound's worth of pride toward their fellow man. I suppose it was of those people Christ was thinking when he said that some would preach about him and would preach about him and cast out devils in his name, only be told at the end that he had never known them. Scary. And any of us may at any moment be in this death trap. Luckily, we have a test. Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel good, that we are good and above, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. It is better to just forget about yourself altogether. That's why a lot of people come to church and they bow their head. When they come to church, you know, they think, I'm not just here at church. They don't walk in. They walk into church lowly. So a church is a place that should be for hurting and lowly. It is a terrible thing that the worst of all the vices can smuggle itself into the very center of our faith. But you can see why. The other and less bad vices come from the devil working on us through our animal nature. But this does not come through our animal nature at all. It comes direct from hell. It is purely spiritual. 
Consequently, it is far more subtle and deadly. For the same reason, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Do you ever do that to your kids? You appeal to their pride to make them behave? Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity, that is, by his pride. Hey, be a better Christian. What kind of a bad Christian are you? So you've got to lift yourself up to be a better Christian, to be a better person. It's actually an appeal to your self-righteousness, to your willpower, to your pride. A lot of churches operate that way. It's dangerous, right? The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting up in you the dictatorship and enslavement of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your chiblins cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. I don't know what chiblins is. I think it's a small cold or something, right? For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or of contentment or even common sense. I'll stop there. So, so now that many of you Some of you, maybe a few of you don't feel too bad yet. Those of you, gosh, you're in trouble. (laughs) You don't know that this is talking about you. But now that I made you feel really bad, okay, let's now give you some good news. You know what the good news is? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. For Christmas is divine Subversive humility. Christmas is we who are prideful who need a huge drinking of humility. You know what God offers you? His humility. You know, we're such messed up people. If God came down in His spectacular, in His almightiness, we would know, oh my gosh, He's so powerful. We better bow down. But you know what? We would still be prideful. We would feel prideful to bow down, probably. Right? So we would still not be redeemed. We would still not be made beautiful and really human in the deepest way that we were meant to be. And so the way only God can deeply redeem us is if He came down not in His almightiness, if He came down in tremendous weakness. If He came down And he flashed us an ocean pouring out of a little baby of humility which can subvert all our self-sufficiency and our riches and our comfortableness and the delusion that we made it all happen and that we are so prideful that we're such good people. And only if the Savior came in tremendous divine humility and died on a cross full of weakness, would we bow down and say, I need you. I need you. Forgive me. Receive me. Change me. So that's Christmas. Merry Christmas. Jesus came to save you. 
Jesus came to give you a gift himself. Jesus came to give you a really great gift. The gift to take away your pride. And how would he do it? He'll inject himself and his humility into you. And you can be free in self-forgetfulness. The liberty of gratitude. The great joyfulness of humility. Be humble and joyful and free because of Jesus on Christmas, okay? Let's pray. Not our money, not our achievements, not all the legalistic appeals to our self-righteousness and our willpower. Gosh, even the way we parent, Lord. But the way you parent us, you come down, offering us your son in weakness and humility, in deep gentleness and patience with Christmas. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for your son, Jesus. In his name we pray.